I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, we're in business. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. Nope. Nope. You are listening to Missed Apex iRacing Podcast. Let's get faster. Somebody said we should change the tagline to Let's Get Broke. And that is mostly down to hashtag Bradfluence from uh, Brad Philpot. Hello, Brad. Hello. So you are constantly in my ear going but wouldn't it be better if you had that bit of equipment and i was explaining that this problem i was having to a few of the lads and one of them went oh yeah no that's bradfluence we we know about that yeah i feel like that character from lord of the rings that whispers in the ear of the king <laughs> like oh yeah but imagine how much better it would be with a a solid rig or or that or that next steering wheel up well, your driving experience is improving as a consequence, surely. Uh, let's see if we can spread some of that Brad fluence to Matt. Two rumpets. Yeah, I'm thinking more Kramer on Seinfeld, if I'm being honest. You'll have to explain that old man reference to me. Uh, if you've not seen it, too hard to explain, but Kramer's advice, fantastically hilarious, but often not the best thing to follow. Yeah. And learning... Learning from us old sweats is teeny tiny Chris Stevens. Hello, Chris. Hello, Spanners. And I personally was thinking more of the Emperor from Star Wars going, do it. You know it. Yeah, but you, we've like, uh, in the past, we've bullied you into having the correct iRacing equipment, mostly so we can get you to commentate on our events. And then slowly but surely, you've been sucked into the iRacing world proper. I did. It, I did get uh, Brad fluenced. It, it, it started off. There wasn't even an itch to scratch there. And then I think I tried it for about a day and I couldn't come off it. I was loving it way too much. And now I'm just hooked. I I have a new iRacing meets real world problem, though. So today, full disclosure, I went to a pub and I had two pints in a pub. And you can probably hear that in my voice. First pub trip of the year, as it turns out, was very pleasant indeed. I've jumped on the mic. Just full disclosure, if I seem different, it's because I don't have the horrible weight of sobriety and life and human feelings hanging over my head. The beer has cured all of that. I have the same problem. This is the first podcast I've done since I had my hair cut and we're not even doing video for it and no one can see how handsome I am now. It's the first time we got trimmed since November. It shows and it is gorgeous. I'm so glad we're separated by Zoom. 
Thank you. Anyway, the point of my tale was I got into the car to drive to the pub. Wife drove home. But when I got into the car, I, I did the adjustable seat thing. You know, you reach underneath and you adjust it to your position. It was wife's car, so I had to move it back a little bit. But now that I've got a rig where the seat is adjustable, that is another thing that is the same in the real world as it is in the rig. So when I slid the seat back, I got a familiar feeling and I was like, oh my God, this feels like being in a sim rig. And that's slightly worrying to me because the more the car feels like the sim rig, the more I'm worried I'm going to do something stupid. So I've got, I've got two examples of, of times where I've behaved as if I'm in the sim in a car. One was when we first got VR and we were in the MX-5s. Oh, this is the other way around. In the sim rig, I was so absorbed that I went to look for the door handle when the race was finished. So I tried to get out the, the fake car with the real door handle. And then driving to work the other day, it was raining and a little bit muddy. And I pressed my visor, my visor tear off strip button instead of the windscreen. And then today with that feeling, when I adjusted the seat, I'm increasingly worried that I'm going to like forget and like take the racing line into a roundabout. But Brad, it's got to be worse for you because you've got a Porsche. Yeah, I've I've done all of these things. I don't think I've tried to get out of the car actually using a, a virtual door handle. <laughs> yeah, um, but I've definitely tried to clear my windscreen with a button that isn't there. Um, I think we do the same things. I certainly do the same things with physical photographs. If I'm looking at a real life photograph now, I try and pinch zoom like I would an iPhone screen, something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I do definitely get lost in which is real and which isn't real even to the point where I was sat in my road car the other day and I was thinking, oh, the field of view isn't fantastic. I can't see both mirrors at the same time. And I was like, oh, I, I, this is actually real. So my my VR actually doesn't have a particularly bad field of view because I can see pretty much the same. Okay, so one thing I did notice was that the frame rate driving my real car was better than in the sim on VR. And I do consciously remember thinking like, oh, this frame rate's really good as I'm looking at the parallax to the background and the frame of the car. So we must all, I think, watch out for that before we accidentally race the A1. Yeah, the lines are becoming more and more blurred. I know. That's a sign of the ever-increasing technology, isn't it? Uh, let's uh, kick off today with some of our iRacing adventures from the week. Uh, the first one I want to start with is uh, my boy, my boy Treeface's adventures. He, I make him earn ovals. He likes doing the ovals, Brad. And uh, I can only assume this is Matt's influence. But he likes the ovals, I think, because there's less pressure. Obviously, we coach him in karting. We coach him in the sim racing, trying to get him to do it properly. When it's on the ovals, he doesn't have to worry about the left pedal. He's only worrying about the loud pedal. But iRacing has a free IndyCar uh, DW12 oval series. When, when the, it's rookie class. So when the tracks are free, it's free. But the speed of that is incredible. Like, he was literally whooping with joy as he was coming out of the pits and overtaking people it's fast it's furious it's uh carnage because everyone's at rookie level um but yeah I, it's not very well populated so i don't know if anyone else had any indycar experience no one's given that a whirl you must have done that yeah i did i did actually uh poking around do one of the indycar races i think it was at the monza oval which is a particularly fun place to go with an Indy car because of all the bumps and stuff like that. And I was astonished at a, how fast the people at the front were for, for it being basically a rookie series and B just how much people crashed yeah. out, uh, for no apparent reason. 
So it's like our, even on the large ovals, it was like a 25 second lap. And my boy took a little bit of time getting up to speed, but he was basically getting the same lap times as me. So the ovals was a, a great kind of equalizer between me and him. And uh, Brad, this is your influence. He saw me understeering into a corner. We both had headsets on so we could both hear the in-game sounds. And he, he, was, he was going, Dad, um, that you're scrubbing the, the fronts and you're, you're understeering. He said, try opening it up a little, being a bit less aggressive with the steering. And I was like, you listen here, boy. He's 10. He's 10, Brad. It's another, this is the good Brad fluence. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> so you're not tempted ever to go and jump into the ovals for a bit of seat time? I have, I have done that occasionally in the past but not for a long time because every time i do it i i kind of do reasonably well in whatever low split i'm in and and can't really progress any higher um it's just not my thing i'm I'm not a massive fan so i'll leave it to you i mean people talk about the f3s being crashy my goodness the ovals at high speed is crashy because if you go on the road cars you are like restricted to mx5s and then skippies but on the ovals, you can just jump into, like, I'm not wrong, am I? Those indie cars, those DW12s, they're like fully fast, top-tier cars, Matt. Yeah, they are. They're, they're the old version of the, of the new indie car. And that's why they're there. It's just content to uh, draw you in and let you experiment with uh, the oval setups. Because I think, actually, I think ovals tend to be pretty populated, at least at the... Um, at, at the I'm going to progress forward level. Yeah. Okay. So we can talk about street stocks a little bit because that's one I flirted with. Surely, Chris, you've been tempted by some street stock ovals. No, no. I got to say, I'm not really a fan of oval racing in general, unfortunately. Much to you know, m- many people on our panels chagrin as I sort of turn my nose up at the Indy 500 every once in a while. I I don't know from dr- a driving point of view. The street stocks on the massive ovals, there's no skill to it in a way because once you lose the pack, you've got no draft and that's it, you're lost. Uh, at least with the IndyCar, there's a li- little bit of lap time to be found from lifting at the right places. But then what the street stock tends to revert to is the very short ovals where you're having to break quite hard into those corners and that gets incredibly repetitive. Uh, and when you see, oh my God, you've done 10 laps, you go, oh, it's another 40 to go. That's when I lose a bit of interest. But when I see them, you know, on, on the big ovals, I, I am kind of tempted. I'm more tempted by the, the road IndyCar uh, stuff, you know, especially because it's it's just fun to to drive a lot of the time. But the oval stuff just doesn't. It's the same thing; just doesn't really interest me. Really. Interestingly, the road oval you drive with the oval license. Sorry, the road oval, the road Indy <laughs> you drive with the road with the oval license. Really? Yes. So I'm told. So you can do the road indie without risking your road license. That's revolutionary. I hope that's actually true because yeah. otherwise someone's <laughs> going to complain about how much SR they lost. I know. Well, that's secondhand information, but that is what our Slack group tells me, Brad. Yeah, that's news to me as well because I would have had a crack at the IndyCar road courses if I'd known that. Um, so I'll have a look. So when they say road course, is that the one where it's like half the oval and then it goes infield? Just anything that isn't an oval. Because I didn't mind that Daytona track. I found that, found that quite interesting. There is something about the tactics of the oval and having the draft and, and, it, and it not... I know it can feel a bit like traffic management, but there's something that I've yet to unlock where I think I would enjoy that at a certain level. So think about when Indy hosted Grand Prix uh, yeah. 15 years ago or so. 
you could get really good races because you would get lots of slipstreaming around that oval section. But for me, the infield sections on oval courses, they just feel really bland and dry because it's always just a sequence of left and right and then left and right while they desperately try and compact a, a, a normal racetrack into the vicinity. Well, that's, and that's not to say all of them are bad. There yeah. are some great, you know, oval uh, road courses, but I think as a concept, they're quite flawed. All tracks you could describe as, yeah, it kind of goes left and then left and then right. And then, and then that is kind of racetracks, Chris, before anyone sends that but, email to spanners at mistapex.net. But they have a very, all the corners feel quite samey. It's a very similar left followed by a very similar right and a similar left and a similar right while it loops back on itself. Matt, can, Matt, Matt, tell him a lot of similarities. Lots of people will tell us why he's wrong. But Charlotte Roval, we had a great time in the Formula Renault 2.0s. Uh, we did. And I, you know, having having been on the Daytona track quite often, I'm, I'm thinking about all the turns and that doesn't seem to be an immense sameness to them they, they're they're pretty different in terms of approach but i would say that what you both are missing and what i have experienced is rookie street stocks is fine but if you want to get to a level where you need real skill in stock cars and ovals you should try the legends out because those things are on the edge of death constantly if you're going fast on them Okay, so I do want something else to try this week because I'm done with I'm done with Zolda guys. A license update. I obviously I got my MPRs up. Uh, I told you last week my SR went from three seven five. I was nearly there. Plummeted to three point one. We are solidly in the twos. Like we are we're we're avoiding relegation at this point. What happened? I I, I kind of gave myself a week off of uh, of iRacing because I heard Zolda was quite crashy. I didn't even own the circuit. And so I thought, oh, we'll just give up. And also, the last race I did, I can't even remember where last week's races were for the F3. I think I had such a torrid Imola, time of Imola. it. Yeah. Imola. So yeah. I, I persisted with Zolder, A, because I like joining in with the swarm that we do. We do a Monday practice and we do a, a Wednesday attack on the officials. But I was like, well, it's Zolder, you know, it's going to be an F1 track at some point. Uh, obviously, that's Zandvoort, and I'd just misinterpreted that. I even ran because i missed the monday practice so i ran a tuesday official with a zandvoort setup and it didn't quite click i survived uh and got myself a 10th place in the top split in the afternoon turns out they're two completely different tracks with two completely different setups um but yeah it's very crashy it was horrible stop laughing brad <laughs> i was having a bad week uh a lot of people did not like Zolder and felt like it was just too crashy. And so, so basically a combination of Zolder and the fact that Imola was death by one X's. So you could have a good race. And before you knew it, you picked up like nine one X's. That's what's cost my SR. I had some straight karma at Imola. Now, I hate people who were just pretty careless on lap one. And unfortunately, I was that person this, this one time. I uh, I'd I had uh, I went into the back of somebody lap one oh, in the first race we did going into Aqua Minerale so upset with myself because it was just really clumsy unable to slow the car down in time and I was frustrated because now you're 19th and the only way you're going to get any better than that is if somebody in front of you crashes so we do the second race later that night on the swarm and I'm thinking right not this time not this time I'm going to go and it was going so well and then at the exact same moment. 
somebody went into the back of me and Instant. wrecked my race. You I deserved had some it. Great karma. I'm glad that I, happened. I was just done at that point. I'm glad that happened. Now, both me and Matt have Brad questions. So, for those of you just finding us for the first time, Brad is uh, not only a fantastic sim driver, but a real world driver. He's a Nordschleifer class, two time class champion, and you professionally test and stress tires as well so when we talk about driving when we talk about tires you're a font of all knowledge as far as we're concerned um matt who shall go first i think i think because we've been talking about imola and zolder two big issues for those things are chicanes chicanes and curbs and their witchcraft and imola for me was ruined by that final chicane because everyone was saying you basically have to jump four wheels off uh, and and if you look to the F1, you see Leclerc as well, like regularly just launching into the air. And Zolder just looks like it didn't used to have chicanes. And someone just went, um, we need something to break it up. Let's put chicanes there. Is there some secret, Brad? Is there some secret to chicanes? Because everyone wants to put the curbs there to stop you cutting them. And to me, it just it takes me. I'd rather have walls instead of those curbs. Well, I don't know if it's a secret, but certainly there's a, a technique which will which will help when you've got very raised curbs like the ones you're talking yeah. about. Zolder in particular, that first chicane you get to, it's like a launch ramp, isn't it? So you basically have to make sure your approach speed and your approach angle are correct. The amount of curb you use is enough, but not too much. Um, and that you're prepared for a landing in such a way that you're not going to overreact when the car does a certain thing. So you, so you sure have you- to accept that you're leaving the track. Yeah, you need to you need to basically preempt the reaction of the car when it lands because it's not going to be um, always doing exactly what you want. You'll, you'll be very lucky if it lands square and stably. So you need to, and also you might be trying to apply throttle at the same time, which makes it even trickier. So you need to make sure your steering is very much where you want it to be. So one early experience that a lot of iRacers might have had is MX Five at Lime Rock when you don't have the chicane and you sweep up the hill. And if you've still got a little bit of right-hand lock as you go up and over the hill, I don't think you lift there, but you the weight comes off the tyres, basically. And if you then land, quote-unquote land, with still a little bit of right-hand lock, you see loads of people spinning and flipping off. Is that a, a similar effect? Yeah, it is quite a similar effect, and, it, and it's a similar technique to avoid it, which is just always being aware of where you actually want the car to go and make sure you've got a very firm link between that and where you're pointing the steering wheel. There should never be an occasion like at Lime Rock as you crest the hill where yeah. the track is now going straight, but you're still applying steering lock. Yes. The fact that the steering is going light in your hand shouldn't be a prompt for you to turn when you're not in oh, a corner. Oh, but it is. <laughs> yeah and it is for a lot of people so yeah. you need to make sure there's a very strong connection between where you're wanting the car to go and where you're telling it to go and a lot of people don't quite have that certainly when they're starting out well i think a lot of times with the steering and the input we're being very instinctive whereas this is a case where you have to be like deliberate so like on that lime rock lift you go no point out make sure you're pointing out the other thing that people will tend to do is lift to stop the back end going out instead and I guess with, with chicanes, you, you know, if you lift, you're kind of in this indecisive state of car where then you're shifting the weight. So you lift, suddenly the weight goes to the rear and that's not where you want it. And that can cause a bunch of problems as well. Yeah, you want to try and get rid of as many imbalances as you can because you're already creating a massive one by launching the car into the air. So if you're accelerating hard, then 
that's a weight transfer. If you're lifting, then that's a different weight transfer. It's good to try and keep a kind of constant throttle at the point where you're cresting the bump, um, whether it's a chicane or whether it's just a, a normal curb. So it's the it's kind of like a normal curb that you'd use in any old corner, but you've got to take into account there is also a direction change in the middle. So it's kind of even more important to get it right. So I have a very specific question about, about that because I found that at Zolder, um, I was actually, my approach to that first chicane was to break at the start of the red and white boards and be slow as I wanted to be. As I, I turned in, I would turn I would almost turn in late and angle back steeply, catch the first curb and catch the second curb all on acceleration. But occasionally, and this is where my question is, occasionally I would get that wrong and take too much of the second curb and I could feel it launch and unsettle. So my question is normally, if I got it right, I'd just be on throttle through the whole thing. But there, recognizing I've unsettled the car too much, what should I do with my throttle once I've hit that curb and I know I'm in that situation? Should I drop it all the way? Should I keep it partially applied? Sort of what's the best thing to do there? So if you're experiencing oversteer, if it's actually already happened, if you've already prompted it, then you need to react in the same way as you would to any moment of oversteer. So once you have um, felt that the rear is going, you need to obviously apply opposite lock or, or do as much of that as you need to and fully remove the throttle. Um, but my whole keeping a constant throttle is to avoid that situation. Obviously, once it happens, you have to deal with whatever the handling imbalance is in real time. So interested to hear Matt saying that he's accelerating through both of, of those curbs. Uh, Chris, what's your approach to that? And I think it's quite similar to the, the final Imola chicane as well. That's not been me at all. I've been like slowing down trail breaking right to that first curb and then kind of clearing it and then gathering my thoughts up and then carrying on. So my approach to kind of any corner really has been the same ever since. And I'm sorry if this sounds like a bit of a, a name drop, but it was when you and I spanners went to GTS racing simulations. We had uh, an afternoon there with Alex Brundle. Friend of the show, Alex Brundle. That's fine. Friend of the show, Alex Brundle. Circles um, we roll in. Yep. Good luck for the uh, LMP2 season ahead, Alex. We know you're listening. Um, we, um, we, we, yeah, we spent an afternoon with him and he was training us. And he said, basically, as soon as you come off the brakes, you want to be about 10, 15, maybe 20% throttle most of the time, you know, even through a corner. And that's kind of been my approach because I think a lot of people will break, come off the brake and then coast around the corner. And you're creating a lot of imbalance that way, because when you come off the brake, you're taking the weight off the front tires uh, and you can very easily spin that way um, as well. So right. I would always just keep a little bit of throttle going just to keep the rear in balance, because pe people often think that if you get on the power too early, it's going to spin. And that's very true if you come on it too hard. But it's all about balance, because remember, when you are putting throttle on, you are sending weight to the rear of the car. I, I definitely want Brad's input on that. But Alex was clearly a lot nicer to you than he was to me. Because <laughs> when, when we were driving around, he was yelling at me. He was going, why, why aren't you touching that apex? Why aren't you on that curb? Why haven't you cut that corner? You're a racing driver. Cheat! And that was, was literally because, what he was yelling at me. Was it because I was quicker? Maybe. Was that why? <laughs> but Brad, I think you would share that in common with Alex. The uh, You're a racing driver. Cheat. Take every advantage out there. Yeah, certainly in, in terms of using as much curb as you can get away with. Yeah, just to just to 
touch on what Chris was talking about. Um, these things are never one rule for every situation. So you would never say, yep, every time you come off the brake, go to 10% throttle. It's just, there are definitely periods where the correct thing to be doing is coasting, but it, it just depends on what the situation is. And if you're trying, if your aim in this particular situation is to keep everything stable, uh, a stable balanced platform, then some gentle constant throttle is quite often good. But the moment you then hit a curb and some of the wheels are off the floor, that 10% throttle is now too much in that instant if if that's then going to mean the wheels are kind of spinning in the air or, or spinning as they go light. So it really is a something that's happening in real time um, that is a changing situation that you need to change your inputs um, based on what's actually happening. Yeah, so there is no one size fits all. But I would say that technique is a good starting point, especially if you are unfamiliar with the circuit and you need to work out how you actually drive particular corners okay so this is something i've been applying with braking and i'd never really thought about it until we had uh, the f3 map series racing at spa so it's lacoon after the you're, you're through uh radion and uh, rouge uh down that straight and then into lacoon i was braking too hard too early it, um but what people were advising me to do it might have been you brad is that you basically have some brake on enough to transfer the weight forward and then you're getting more mechanical grip to help you around the corner. And I applied that in Imola as well into the the second chicane, into the Villeneuve chicane. So I'm actually on the brakes that whole time to let myself get turned into that awkward right-hander and stay in fourth gear on that right-hander. I'd not thought about it the other way, Brad, which is that I could also use the throttle to manipulate the weight what's that helping me with is that is that helping me with a bit of rear stability ordinarily in a rear wheel drive car you'd say applying throttle isn't going to help your rear stability because you're going to potentially spin the wheels by applying throttle um so you wouldn't normally think i need a bit more rear grip i'll apply more throttle because generally the time you're feeling a need for more rear grip is when you're already spinning the wheels and if you're spinning the wheels you're already on the throttle okay so So what is chris's little 10 percent throttle thing achieving in that phase between braking and accelerating i think that's more um about when you're transitioning through maybe a a tight right left chicane like near the end of the lap at imola where you need the car to stay balanced uh, when it's kind of in a very imbalanced situation when you're chucking it up in the air so that that kind of 10 percent throttle is just keeping the the platform of the car stable so you're not accelerating or decelerating you're just not Uh, prompting the car to do anything toward matt well, I, I wanted to ask, uh, because I know that when you were with Alex, you were in GT cars, correct? Yeah. So, Super Cup car, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of that, to my understanding, is about managing the weight, weight transfer and, and weight balance of the car to get through the turn quickly. And I, I wanted to ask Brad, like in the example of the Villeneuve, I didn't do it like Spanners did. I found that that I wanted to get turned and and on the accelerator as I hit the second part of that chicane. But we use the throttle to manage the weight or we use the throttle to balance the platform or both, or is it different? Like I'm not quite clear when I should do what, I guess that's what I'm saying. So to be clear, that was me using the brake to shift the weight to the front to give myself more front grip. But yeah. Yeah. So you're generally, you're doing all of these things, which is the, the tricky way the, the tricky reason this is um, a difficult subject <laughs> no, explain it in three sentences for idiots 
so what spanners was talking about is is just like a general technique to make sure you're maximizing entry speeds by not doing all the braking purely in a straight line and then coming off the brakes having a, a light front end effectively yeah. and then trying to make the turn um he's kind of moved past that beginner's technique which is just to try and keep you on the track and, and make sure you don't have an off and now he's in the much more advanced phase which i'm sure all of you guys are which is using the brakes crossing that over into the turning phase so you're you're keeping not only are you braking later as a consequence because your braking zone is extended into the corner but you're also helping the amount of entry speed you can carry because you've got more weight over the front tires as well so spanners is using the weight in that way um in terms of using the throttle to keep the car balanced i'm really using that um in the example of bouncing over a high curb that's that's when i'm talking about that there are other times when you're just entering an ordinary corner and you're not throwing the car in the air. You know, you're on quite a, a flat piece of track. You generally wouldn't be doing too much of just holding the throttle constant because you could probably be still slowing down at that point or speeding up. Unless the corner is um, just extremely yeah. long and uniform, you're not normally... If you ever look at a speed trace on a piece of data from a race car, it's very rarely flat. It's either going up or going down because the driver is either braking as late as possible and slowing down right up until the point where they can't do it any later and then immediately speeding up again. Um, they're, they're not normally constant. So like Luffield at Silverstone? Yeah, so even Luffield at Silverstone, you, it would be a, a smoother curve on a speed graph, but it wouldn't be like a, a complete constant. You're, you're constant for a very short period of time. Um, when I was talking about using the throttle to keep the car stable, and I think Chris's example of the 10% throttle, it's more when you're you're bouncing across a Zolder curb or the final chicane at Imola and you you need to carry as much speed as you can but you need the car to not get out of shape when you do that and so you're trying to not accelerate or decelerate at the very moment you take to the air and obviously Chris we we understand that will be very much car dependent yeah absolutely of course a GT car is a lot heavier than a single seater for example therefore you have more weight to play with and those transitions can have a, a bigger effect. I think, uh, talking about braking, I think a lot of newer uh, fans of, of motorsport uh, would be surprised or wouldn't know that drivers modulate the brake pedal, for example. Because let's say when you're watching Formula One, that halo graphic comes up, and you see you see the throttle one, you see it gradually come on, but then the brake one comes on, and it's either 100%, or it's off. Or it seems like that, yeah. Yeah, and so because I, I don't know why, but they don't seem to be able to actually tell you how much pressure the driver is putting through the brake pedal. And so it's I think it's something that you don't realize. You certainly don't get the sense watching it. And so it's something yeah. you may not necessarily think the first time you jump in a simulator to actually do. Well, the thing is, Matt, video games, it's left trigger, right trigger on the controller, and you just podge the brake when you need to brake, and you podge the accelerator when you need to go. You have traction control, you have ABS. And, and I think in iRacing, it, it mostly takes that away. And so people don't appreciate, we now appreciate a little bit, how hard that is. Yeah, well, I would just reply to Chris briefly, probably because the teams don't want the other teams seeing that information <laughs> because they'd learn yeah. rather a lot about how the car was being operated. I also want to mention, I remember I heard this phrase one time, cadence braking, uh, with regards to like locking up into a turn. Uh, and I just wanted to ask Brad, maybe since we're talking all about brakes today, maybe he could tell us what that is and, and when it's used. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, so cadence breaking is, is a pretty basic technique, um, which is becomes more refined the better you get at driving. But it's essentially um, a technique you use in a car that doesn't have ABS when you're trying to brake on the limit um when you're braking very hard in a vehicle without abs obviously you can lock the tires um generally the front tires and cadence braking is where you recognize that a tire has locked and you then remove that brake input um, and then try and reapply it again it's basically like crude human abs um, because all your abs is doing in your car is is seeing that the wheels are trying to lock and then in a very high frequency removing and reapplying the brake as much as it can get away with without locking up the wheels that's kind of what you should be doing as as a human driver as well um, although ideally you would brake hard enough so you hold the car on the point just where it's trying to lock without actually locking and by applying steering lock into a corner you're changing the variables you're changing the environment and you need to modulate the pressure on the brake pedal um, in sync with the amount of extra work you're asking that inside front tire to do. So the more steering you apply, the less braking you can get away with. But cadence braking is, is that moment where you have to remove the pressure to unlock the tire and then reapply it. And most top tier racing cars these days do not have ABS on them. Uh, I think GT3 is probably the most uh, prevalent series or category that still uses ABS because it's aimed at you know amateur racers basically. Um, but even then, you can still overwhelm the ABS system if you are going in, you know, full lock and full pressure on the brake pedal. You're still going to overwhelm that system and lock tires up. Um, I don't know, Brad, if you know why it's called cadence braking um, or where the name comes from. Is it a driver who? 
came up with we're not we're not doing etymology of breaking terms here chris i'm sure someone can email us and and let us know about that so uh two two questions one is because the we spent a lot of time doing the mx5s and that has abs firstly though uh, i remember coming out of a supermarket car park towards a busy roundabout in the snow and you hit the brakes and as soon as it locks very easy to lock in the snow it then you're on a sled then and so nothing you're doing is effective. The brakes aren't working until you get the tyres going again. So I came off the brakes. It worked kind of a little bit, but not really. So I snatched at it again. It starts sliding. And then in the end, <laughs> in, in the snow, sliding towards this roundabout, I jammed it in reverse and started reversing to try and stop myself from hitting the roundabout. It was all very dramatic in slow time. My wife was very calm and didn't half deafen my left ear at all. So in the MX-5, where it has ABS, you get to the point where you lock. It automatically releases to get the wheels turning again will i drive better with an abs car if i act as if there's no abs is the abs saving me costing me time to a point yes yeah you you will drive slight you will drive better if you drive correctly Uh, never even thought of it years driving the mx5 however you should still brake really really hard Uh, even pro drivers will lean on the abs certainly in a straight line um, because the car just can respond quicker than you. It doesn't matter how how good you are and how fast you react to that locking. It will a human cannot react as quickly and and as um, accurately as the ABS system can. Just to answer Chris's question, the reason it's called yeah. cadence braking is because the word cadence means uh, a, a, a rhythmic succession, something like that. You know, it, it's one of the meanings of the word cadence. So it's kind of that on-off, on-off rhythm. But the car can do that better than a human can. So you should still rely on it when you first hit the pedal. But certainly you'll find a a loss of performance if you're trying to do really big trail braking and and applying too much brake. It kind of doesn't, it's not quite smooth. It's just not as good a technique. A a really good example of getting the maximum out of a car with abs on it so a gt3 car for example go and watch uh like a a qualifying lap or just any lap of a pro driver at the bathurst 12 hours where they do use gt3 cars and there's a lot of pro drivers and you get to see them using you know the full force of the brakes especially if there's you know if it's got the telemetry uh with the lap as well but then of course going around the mountain section where you can't fully utilize the brakes and you still have to drive as if you don't have abs it's a really just a just a great lesson, I think, in how to drive a car with uh, with ABS on it. Mattel Kim in our Patreon Slack group iRacing channel has a good question, very related to what we're talking about. We're talking about cadence braking, avoiding locking. He says, uh, I remember this was talked about a few weeks ago. When you lock your wheels, you let the brakes off and then reapply. But what if you just lock one brake? If I let off, I lose all the braking on all the other wheels. Um, also, I know Brad was saying that a lockup in F1 destroys the tyres. Am I right in thinking it's not the same in the F3? So to answer that one quickly, I've been told numerous times that the F3 will not like give you a flat spot, but it will kind of simulate overheating tyres, so you need to let them calm down for a few turns. Uh, but what about this um, this scenario where we just lock one wheel? So this will be, as we're turning, we, we unload one wheel. What do we do? So it's a very good question, and it's not... I mean, as you were asking it my brain was was trying to work out what the actual question was because it seems like such an obvious answer to me but it's obviously not a completely obvious thing 
normally when you lock a wheel, it is only one wheel. So this isn't this isn't an exception. This is the normal situation. When you lock a brake, you're locking one of the tires. And the reason it's important to unlock it, um, despite the fact that you're right, you're obviously losing braking force on all four yeah. tires when you when you remove the, the brake force, is that one tire is a very high proportion of your two front tires, which are doing 100% of the steering. And if you lose 50% or almost 50%, if you've unweighted that tire slightly by turning into a corner, that is a lot of turning you're losing at that point, plus a lot of deceleration um, ability. So yes, you're losing pressure on the other three, but you're doing that very briefly because you should be reacting to the lockup instantly and then reapplying the brakes. So you're, you're only losing that braking effect for a tiny bit of time, and the trade-off is a massive benefit to your steering right. and the rest so, of it. So, I think uh, uh, Matt Kim's sort of instinct there is: well, I've still got, I've still got turning and and uh, retardation on three wheels. I should just stick with that and not worry about the one that's locking. I mean, and that most of my answer there is aside from the fact that you're doing untold damage to the locked tire, not in iRacing so much in terms of a flat spot, but in, in terms of wear, absolutely. Uh, if I, in the series I'm, I'm racing in, if I was to lock an inside front tire and leave it locked up, that set of tires is junk. I'm going to lose seven or eight laps from that stint, um, but from that one lockup. So McLaren in the late 90s developed a car with two brake pedals that acted on either side of the car so can you imagine the idea of you lock your left front so you just release the left pedal a little bit i would love to see that simulated at some point it's a little bit off topic but i thought i'd throw that in there <laughs> that's good well hilariously i was listening to none other than patty Lowe yesterday at a webinar oh yeah and he said that was the favorite thing that ever got developed under his reign at mclaren but it was a rear brake not a front brake and it only worked on one side to help the car get around the corner, which all modern cars use a, a version of this when they go around corners. They use the brakes to help the car go around more accurately if yeah. you set up the right electronic um, gugaws and the, gadgets. The I thing suppose. is, in the future, Brad, you're going to have an electric motor on each wheelbase. You know, can you imagine a world where you have different pedals somehow you can somehow just change the balance of those uh, of those those quiz well if i understand electric motors correctly and i don't but <laughs> but if if anything my experience in formula e for example has taught me is that most of the time when they're slowing down the cars they're not using the brakes they are using the regen yeah. to slow the car down so what does that mean in road cars of the future you 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 when you put your foot down it's actually a regen rather than like a brake pedal. Yeah, well, this is what we talked about with Stuart Mitchell on the Mist Apex show. That was, a, that was about, a tech bit. No one listens to that. They were talking about using the motors on all four wheels to amp up the region because you could actually get more region from the front axle than you can from the back. Uh, but what I asked about was what's called torque vectoring, which is what spanners meant, where you have a motor on each wheel. And as you go through a turn, you have a computer ECU or the ECU for the car, sending energy to each wheel to maximize the grip through the corner. And so that is something that already is on some road cars and will probably be on more in the future. So you'd imagine that would be electronically handled rather than having separate pedals. Like with your McLaren example, you wouldn't have a separate pedal for your left wheels and your right wheels. Now, Matt, you had a question for Brad about 
break collaborate calibration in iRacing? Well, not just break calibration, but also choosing setups. And I know we only have like 20 or 30 minutes left, so I'll barely have enough time to just ask Ten the question. 10 minutes left. But Brad, here you go. I, I, unlike everybody else, I had a good time at Zolder. I don't particularly like the track, but I had a good result. But I ran into a real problem. I had two completely different setups. One was a high downforce setup. One was a low downforce setup. And yet when I ran them in practice, I absolutely 100%, I was within four 100s on either setup. And so I know that means that the problem at that point is the uh, nut behind the wheel, not the setup. But given that, which one do I pick and why? Yeah, that's another really good question. So it's hopefully quite an easy one to answer as well. Um, I assume you then went and ran full race runs with either one uh, and then worked out which one got you to the end of the race quicker. Because just because they were exactly the same over one lap doesn't mean they're the same over a race stint. So was there an answer there? Yeah, well, what I, what I did in this instance is I ran 10 lap stints on both. And then I went to VRS and I just looked at my average lap time over the stints. And I, and I picked the one that had the slower lap, but the faster average time. And also it just the times looked more consistent. And I think crucially for me, I was quicker sooner with a high downforce setup. So I felt that would be a good choice in this instance. So it sounds like you've already answered some of your own questions. And a lot of this is once you do have two identical lap time setups or as close as, as damn it, then it kind of is down to subjectively which one you feel you're going to be able to make the fewest mistakes with, get to the end of the race in the shortest possible time, and then maybe just add in which one might make overtaking easier. Uh, that might also come into it. If you're with a high downforce setup, but there's a very long straight where you're going to get mugged every lap, then there's no point. You're going to lose three places every lap, even though in clear air, you could be doing the same kind of lap times. And that was my dilemma is that it was a high downforce that was more consistent, but I was, I was concerned about the ability to overtake or being overtaken, especially at Zolder. Yeah, plenty- oh, go on, Brad. I was just going to say, if you're as analytical uh, as me and you care about it as much as me, when you're faced with a similar dilemma, as I was yesterday, I was trying to choose between a one-stop set, uh, sorry, a one-stop strategy or a two-stop strategy for my next race. I just ran an hour-long race and logged every single lap time and the amount of time I spent in the pits and then did exactly the same, but for one stop and then put them all in an Excel spreadsheet and saw which one came out oh six seconds Oh my God, quicker. you nerd, I'd rather be slow. That's so nah. much work. <laughs> so what? If I have two hours to play, to, to play, sorry, everyone. If I have two hours to play iRacing game, I, I wanted to be around race cars. Who's got two hours to do that? I, I didn't do it at a previous race and got it wrong. And I ended up six seconds behind the battle for the top three. Whereas had I had I done what I did yesterday, I would have been in that fight or slightly ahead of it. So at so least I now know. To immediately contradict what I just said, like Matt and uh, and Chris will know. When we do the swarm practice on a Monday before the official start on Tuesday and we have our swarm on the Wednesday, it is a massive unfair advantage on our peers who are doing that race that we've had that Monday to sit and to talk to people and to run laps and to run race simulations with setups. So I'm a massive hypocrite because we do do F3 race distances on the Monday for the track that's not going official until the Tuesday, Chris. So uh, that has really, really helped us. Well, half distances we do, but then no. You know, but in okay. practice, you can go and do a race distance. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, whenever we go karting, you spend a month doing laps at that. Now, now, kart track anyway. So. No, I don't know. It's not a month. It's just it's a few weeks, and I get it's Brad to come weeks. down with me and tell me exactly where I'm going wrong. Yeah, 
exactly. Um, just to kind of add to Matt's setup dilemma, uh, I w- would try and pick something that has a bit more straight line speed. Otherwise, you will be a little bit of a, a sitting duck on a on a straight, particularly if it's the kind of track, and there are plenty of them, where whether you go for high downforce or low downforce, it's kind of lap time neutral. It's just how you generate that lap time is different. I would go for the, the lower downforce one, quicker straight line speed, provided it doesn't make the car too difficult to drive yeah. and you're much more likely to drop it on your own. All right, solve a mystery for us um, guys, but possibly mostly Brad. Uh, in fact, we'll, we'll, I'll get the approach that Chris and Matt take and then we'll find out what Brad thinks of it. So we all use like the PDS stuff and and maybe we'll nick a Dory setup or maybe we'll have a Kyle special, which will absolutely kill you. But in general, we often get faced with a difference between a lower downforce setup and a higher downforce setup for for a track. And I am finding increasingly that it's always the lower downforce setup that helps for me. A, I I don't want to get mugged down the straight. So in the race, it helps me defend a little bit. Uh, But also in general, I feel like I don't know how to drive a higher downforce setup. So when I switch to the higher downforce, I'm not gaining anything anyway in the in the corners so i'm wondering if that's something particular to my driving style or the fact that i simply cannot utilize high downforce Uh, first let's see how chris and matt feel about that i feel like people really underestimate how much downforce a single seater has uh case in point when we did alton park a few weeks ago there's that incredibly fast right hander at the end of the back straight that leads you back onto to where the chicane exits so if you were taking the normal track, you'd go through that chicane and then head on to that double right-hander. Instead, there was a very, very fast right-hander. People were going so much slower through there than they could be. It was really only like the top five people in a race who would be taking that uh, properly. And I think it's just people don't realize you can fling it through there. And there's a really good reason for that, I think. It's because if you slow down too much, you lose your downforce and suddenly the car becomes really hard to drive. And your first thought is, oh, I'm taking too much speed through the corner. And so you get yeah. stuck in a loop and go slower and slower so and slower. So do you tend really, to go more go high quicker. do you tend to go more high downforce, more low downforce? It really depends on the circuit. Um I've been finding the uh the high downforce ones have been working really well for me lately but i kind of have a problem with how pds label their <laughs> their setups okay. because i often find that the high downforce one will still have the same straight line speed as the low downforce one and it's it's really more about the feel of the car rather than just this one has more downforce than this one so i would agree with chris lately i've been finding that the high downforce ones and i actually used kyle's at zolder believe it or not it did not kill me i thought it was fantastic the thing about having the same straight line speed is because you carry more speed through the corner and you're going faster on exit, your speeds yeah. can be equal. And there you could use a tool like the uh, best sector to compare your low and high downforce through a single sector to see if you're going to lose out to somebody with a really low downforce setup. Um, I, I think this is too long a question to answer, but basically I think you're you might be onto something with your not making the most of the downforce. So it may well be that the particular high downforce setup in in this pretend scenario is the quicker over a lap in the hands of an expert. But if you're not maximizing 
the amount of downforce that you've got. If you're not carrying you well all the speed the you can, you might as well use the low downforce. Yeah. And just as a real world example to this, I might've used this before. Um, at the circuit, I used to work at Bedford Autodrome. Sometimes they would have very expensive experiences where normal people could come and drive a Formula 2 car, a fully right. fledged, wow. fire-breathing Formula 2 car. And they would also, as a preparation for that, drive a much, much slower corporate single-seater, which had half the power, barely any downforce, and old old tyres. And invariably, ma- the majority of people would actually go faster over a lap in the much slower car <sighs> because they just were not capable of accessing all the extra performance the Formula 2 car I- had. I had feared this was going to be the answer. So basically, I'm just not good enough to utilise the downforce, which is why when I go loud, low downforce, I drive, I drive better because I'm not, I'm actually, the high downforce is restricting me. I'm getting all the downsides of the high downforce with none of the benefits. But then if you think about GT racing, you might be a, a lot better at that because GT cars obviously don't have as much downforce as single seaters. I think, Spanners, you just need a better steering wheelbase. Don't do it. Stop Brad fluencing me. Stop Brad. I think you need a better tutor. So it's not. It's not in my head. Is it as simple as just going right? I've got the high downforce on. Is it in my head? Is it just a case of I've just got to. I've just got to give it some nuts. My experience is I will always start with a low downforce, and then I'll switch to the high downforce, and it can take a while to try and get the same lap time. But really, what I find is that the turns are very, very different with the higher downforce. How you approach them where your minimum speed is and how you use the throttle through the turn. As in, I get turned in a lot earlier and I'm on throttle a lot sooner with a high downforce. Whereas with a low downforce, I tend to break almost all the way up to the apex and then gradually get back on the throttle for things that aren't like chicanes or weird turns like that. Yeah. I just just wondered if it was the fact that you know, I, I'm just a little bit more conservative in general. I tend to break a little bit earlier, try and carry a bit more speed. Uh, but it's just coming down to just um, just give it some welly, Brad. Do I just need to be a, be a bit braver when I strap the arrow on? Yeah, just make sure you are absolutely up to the limit before you make a decision. <laughs> I and don't I mean, like, like the limit. It's scary. You need to be dancing on that mid-corner <laughs> handling imbalance. Whatever's going to happen, whether it's going to understeer or oversteer, you need to be prompting that so you can actually assess the, the setup. yeah i had someone in my ear saying if you don't if you're not nearly off on the exit you're not going quick enough and i guess it's the same for the mid corner if you're not struggling with understeer oversteer you you if you're comfortable you're slow yep exactly ah there we go that's a good place to end the show if you're comfortable you're slow uh have we got any streaming back up and running in philpot world is it worth subscribing to your channel which unlike mine doesn't have 10,000 subscribers. That's right. Missed Apex F1 podcast has 10,000 subscribers today. So happy. Uh, Brad, yours doesn't have 10,000, but is it still worth tuning into? Yeah, it's definitely worth tuning into sure. because okay. I've just begun releasing some some kind of track guides instead of just oh, streaming. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Each of the Formula One tracks that we're visiting in the iRacing Grand Prix series, because it's no real effort to produce a video like this because I'm doing the practice anyway, I'm just going to do like a little video guide to that track. So maybe it'll be useful to some people. And if you fancy looking at some other fun racy videos, that's where you find them. So just go to Brad Philpot on YouTube. I can think of two other reasons to subscribe to Brad's channel. One is Learn the Nord Life in Under an Hour, which is a phenomenal video series. And if you haven't uh, watched it, 
then go and do so. I could do the Nordschleifer in way less than an hour. That's actually been getting quite a lot of comments recently. It's great oh, okay. because that, that video series went up a couple of years ago now. Obviously, the track is, is really the same. It hasn't really changed. And I get nice comments every other day. It's like a little thing I wake up to, like a, a little morning motivation. Someone will say, thanks so much for the Nordschleifer guide. That's the opposite for us, Matt. We get YouTube videos, comments every few days telling us we're knobheads. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a thing to flog because iRacing does races at the full Nordschleife fairly often endurances and so i'm sure that's why people keep on finding it because it's incredibly good and useful and i used it myself the first time i raced there the second reason you should subscribe to brad's channel is because i edited two of your vlogs i think it was two so you should just check those out no one watches the vlogs well they should because they're damn good Good to know he was grateful for your work, though, isn't it, Chris? That's the all right. So that's enough of the Brad Philpot uh, plugs. I, I haven't got the Nordschleifer. It's a uh, separate content, is it? Yeah. Should I have a go? Yeah, yes. you need to get that. It's the best track right, in the well, world. What car should I drive around the best track in the world that's unnecessarily long? The the Mercedes AMG GT3 that you oh, really have that. own. I have that. Okay, brilliant. I'll have a go. I just it does seem a bit like oh I can't bother. How many turns is it? Uh, loads. Oh, 173. Loads yeah. is so many. Is it really 173? Yeah, about that. Oh, yeah. Who's got P- the time? Plus the Formula One. Track. It, it, it depends on which configurate, whether you run the VLS, or sorry, the NLS, it's now called um, layout, uh, or the N24 layout, or just the Nordschleifer, or, you know, there's there's a lot of is it is it classed, though, just as a normal track? It's not like four times as expensive. I think it's the same. same. All right, I might be tempted into that. And uh, still outstanding is you and I doing an F1 session as well. Um, I'm going to see if I can bully you into giving my lad a little bit of uh, a little bit of a coaching session too. Now that he's happy with the rig and he's all set up, Uh, Chris, you do things, I guess. Not really. You don't really promote anything for yourself anymore. You are a corporate shill for mainstream motorsport PR. Well, I suppose if you follow me on Twitter at Chris on Racing. Um, you can see some of the oh, okay. exploits I do with my various uh, clients in motorsport PR and lots of exciting things. I just launched a, a TV channel, so uh, happy nice. days. Do you retweet all your professional tweets from your personal account? Not all of them. Some of them. The the key ones, the ones that matter, so mm, you can see what's mm, going on. Interesting. Um, it's a bit there. look at me, isn't it? But okay, well, that's just what you uh, like. I would also like to promote the Missed Apex iRacing F3 Cup, which... <sighs> Presumably, if you are listening to this podcast, you may well be a participant yes. in the championship. April but if you 30. are not, yeah. if you are not a participant, then I would strongly recommend you either A, look into it, or B, watch the live stream on April 30th, where we go ahead for round three. Well, you and can catch, is, yeah, you can catch round two by searching for Missed Apex Motorsport on YouTube. Yes, so the very YouTube channel that this podcast goes out on, Mist Apex Motorsport, is where you can watch the first two rounds of this championship. And it is just, honestly, I think it's one of the most exciting, enthralling, and best produced uh, iRacing series on YouTube. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's underselling it a little bit. (laughs) Email me, spanners at Mist Apex. No, in fact, no. Email racecontrol at mistapex.net to get registered. The grid's pretty full for round three already matt is at matt pt 55 on on twitters on the twitter you can race me matt me and matt me matt and kyle and van Jean 
avoid us all uh, if you want to race in those series. We're all there. We, brothers. We, all, we all swarm Van Jeans into his F1 at the minute and fighter planes. But you, me and Kyle, we're there swarming it up every Monday and Wednesday. Yeah, come join me for the early race um, because I'm having to work during the normal swarm time. But if you're available for the 6.15, a UK time or a 1.15 East Coast time, come join me there because I do, I do every race and I always come to the practices. And I just feel the need to point out that immediately after I got my expensive new camera that makes me even prettier, that's when we got 10,000 on our YouTube channel. That's what it was. It was all just a giant thirst trap. Follow Matt at MattPT55 on Twitter. We are at iRacingPodcast on Twitter and I am at SpannersReady. We will see you next week on Thursday. Join us for our F1 stuff. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex iRacing Podcast. Let's get more Hashtag Bradfluence. Everyone, memorize your wife's schedule and uh, get packages delivered when she's at work. That's the that's the real secret. We didn't even touch upon the fancy new baby direct drive wheel from Fanatec. No, I'm and not. we didn't get to my uh, brake editing to make me faster. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, that would have been horrible. Okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.